the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The fortune-making spirit of today's marketplace, The Rob Black Show. One of the things that I was always interested in was credit scores. It's one of those things where you feel like you have a report card. It's important. I don't think it's the end-all, be-all that we sometimes make it out to be. There's a lot of bills in Congress trying to change credit reporting. And let's look at it. This is something you could pass on to your kids. First and foremost, I use an app called Credit Karma. I think it's nice. It does a really good job of showing me how many accounts I have, what my credit score is, kind of. That's where I don't necessarily think it does the greatest job, is that I think there's a lot of variance in the numbers being reported. Um, so your credit score on the three different major platforms could range 10, 15 points. And that's fair. They're allowed to judge in different ways. And at different times, they'll pull different amounts of data. Credit scores are important because you might be able to get a job from it or lose one or an apartment or lose one. As far as getting credit cards, I'm good with that too. A good credit score will help you get a better credit card. But with that said, I don't think you need a super credit card. I've got one that I paid $550 for last year. It's a travel card. And because I didn't really travel, it didn't really kick in much savings. But I made about $200 after all was said and done with the way I spent. So most of last year, I used my, my double cash back. So what I'm basically implying is I have two credit cards. Really, I have three. One that I use all my business expenses on. One that I do all my travel, whether it be hotels or flights. And one that I do, oh, uh, the travel is hotel flights and restaurants. And another one that is tied towards um, just the double cash back on things like grocery and, ca and gas. But there's an obsession with credit scores. And I think one of the very first things you can do when you start to fall in love is say, I'll show you mine if you show me your credit report, not credit score, credit report. You can learn a lot. I could figure out that you were married and divorced and you have alimony, that you've missed payments. You can learn a lot. I can see how many jobs you've worked at. I can see how many houses you've owned. So I think it's a nice way to start talking about money with a potential loved one. Moving credit reporting to a public agency is an idea that started to gain traction. These are all private companies that do their credit reporting. Now, this is where maybe it starts to get a little too politicized. Credit reporting in the United States is a mess. 
the most glaring issue is that a large portion of Americans are credit invisible. I've only, well, I don't know how many people I've met, but the only person I've known to be credit invisible was a guy who wanted to get a mortgage loan and he had no credit and he thought that was a good thing. He had never taken out a credit card. He had never done anything like that. No mortgage is nothing. So, and here he was like a 45 year old man with no way of showing people that he ever did anything. So what do you think the banks thought when they're like, you want a mortgage? Well, what do you do? Are you a drug runner? Well, like, what do you do? <laughs> like, there was nothing on him. You only work in cash, dude. You kind of felt that way. 45 million Americans are credit invisible. No credit scores because there's not enough information in the credit files. This issue affects some groups more than others. Blacks, Latinos, low-income Americans are all far more likely to be credit invisible. I was doing some research on um, buying homes, trying to get some content for the show. And I was shocked that it talked about people who write letters to the landlord, not the landlord, people write letters to the owner and say, I'd really like to buy your place. Here's a picture of my family. I love your swimming pool. And look at these two beautiful children I have. That's starting to get like racial profiling put into it. Where if the owner of the home that you're trying to buy is white and she sees a white family, she might go, oh, I, I like, they look just like my family and I'm gonna sell it to them. It's interesting how politicized and how racism plays into financial issues like credit scores and buying homes. So proposals to improve the credit reporting system and putting it with the government, I don't know. It would try to help, I see what it's trying to help. It's trying to help predict risk levels of consumers while minimizing racial disparities. There's a bill in front of Congress that wants to give you access to free credit reports and scores, dispute errors, and place or lift credit freezes. Now, you may not think that you ever have errors on anything you do, but you do. Um, I recently pulled up my social security statement, and on it, 2019's earnings, 2018's earnings, were missing a zero. So it looked like I didn't make very much money, which is okay because I'm not going to need that social security statement until later, but there are errors on your credit report. There are errors on your social security report. There's probably errors in the value of your home if a, uh, someone at the courthouse you know, records your purchase price as one zero too many, you're not happy with the tax report, or one zero too little, you're stoked and you never want to bring it to their attention. So you should check on errors because Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion don't do the greatest jobs ever. And all of them want to stop Congress from passing a consumer um, public interest kind of approach because, and this is where it gets weird, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, they make big money from selling your credit score, from trying to let banks know how much of a risk you are or not before that bank lends you money. 
So I, I, I get the love affair. I get the weirdness with credit scores. I think credit karma is an app that's free. I'm not freaked out by it. Some people don't like financial information opened too many different times from too many different places on too many different devices. But common bills aren't counted on credit reports and they should be like rent and utilities. Credit cards and loans, on the other hand, carry more towards your score. And again, again, does that get into some racial bias? Income and equity? I bet it does. I'm really not an expert at racial issues. So I try to like honor, but not dwell. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial money investing and more. Are you worried about your credit report? Are you worried about your credit score? Would you marry someone with a credit score 150 points below you? I would have serious hesitations even if I was in love. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial money investing more. Find me at Rob Black Show. That's robblackshow.com. Resources to help you manage your money. Visit robblackshow.com. That's robblackshow.com. A personal financial plan with custom investment advice. That's why Rob Black has partnered with EP Wealth Advisors. With over $12 billion in assets under management and more than 80 financial professionals at the helm, EP services were built with you in mind. How can they help you? Find out at robblackshow.com. Robblackshow.com. I've been talking money and investing for 25 years. Probably give or take a year on either side of that statement. One of the things that constantly is in the background in the minds of Wall Street is inflation. It can be scary for investors because inflation is... It's the dirty word in investing. It's the word you can't say. You know, there's a word you're not allowed to say to women. You know, there's a word you're not allowed to say with people of color. You know, there's a word you probably can't say to your boss. I don't know what that one is because I love my boss. He's handsome. Um, but inflation's the, the dirty word. It's, it's a no-no. It can be really scary to say it out loud. I... Flew the week after 9-11. And one of the business people that I was flying with made a joke that had the word bomb in it. I was like, you can't say that at the airport. You just, are you that much of an idiot? And people either love me or hate me because I'm very, very frank. Um, One of my good friends in college gave me the best compliment. His girlfriend didn't really like me. And he goes, I like Rob because I always know where he's coming from. I try to bring that approach to investing. So labor is creating inflation post-pandemic. There's different reasons for inflation. There could be oil that's being hoarded by the OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Or they hold it and they, they, you want it and you, it goes up in price. Or How about the Suez Canal gets blocked and you want furniture? There's only 10 pieces left in the furniture store. There used to be 15. They're not going to do any discounts. They're going to inflate prices. Sometimes it's supply and demand. Sometimes, and in in this case, it is supply and demand. It creates inflation. There's demand for us to go into restaurants and a demand for us to go into retail stores. And labor is saying, we don't want anything to do with that. 
maybe their psychology is, I don't want a little paying job. Maybe I've heard there's better jobs out there. Maybe the job market's healthy. But labor is causing inflation in the United States because corporations, now get this, corporations are holding on to labor. I start playing the game that I play. I think of corporations as living human beings. I work for EP Wealth. I look at it as a person. I work for Cron4, but I only volunteer for them. So I look at them as a relationship. I work for Salem Broadcasting, who I love. Very strong and very handsome. Right here, right now, broadcasting. Uh, all my bosses are probably the most intelligent people I've ever met, and I have no problems with any of them. But as labor, if I'm the hottest thing in America, if I'm the number one financial show, they're going to have to pay me because someone else will. That same exact idea is happening and creating inflation in the United States. It's corporations wanting to hold on to labor, which is a strong signal signal of the difficulties right here, right now of replacing workers. So we're getting robust, robust, robusto. What is that coffee called? Robusto? We're getting robusto um, jobs numbers. And yet we still have a shortage of labor in key areas like restaurants and retail. Huh. Historical periods of inflation in the United States. I tried to come down with the last I, – I, so I, what I did was I pulled up inflationdata.com. Nice research report titled the United States Department of Labor Bureau of Labor Statistics. Say that fast. We have a Department of Labor Bureau of Labor Statistics? Yes. 2008 had above an average inflation at 3.8%. 2005 at 3.4%. 2000 was 3.4%. 1991 of 4.2%. 1990 at 5.4%. Now, it's interesting that the inflation in the 90s, the 90 and 91, we kind of had a rotten stock market period. Now, getting into the 80s, and every I'm going to say everything before the 80s, what do they call that in baseball? The old era or the golden era versus the modern era of statistics. Like, we're not all that impressed with Babe Ruth now because if you had to do it against a pitcher throwing a 106-mile fastball curveball slider, he wouldn't be able to do it. So we'd look at, ah, they weren't really athletes back then. They were just a bunch of fat guys playing on Sundays. Same thing can be said that's true, in my opinion, on the economy. I think pre-1980, it's going too far back. But pre-1980, inflation ranged from 1.9% all the way up to 13.5%. We got 1.9% in 1986. And a lot of times in the 1970s, we're at over 10%. Now, what I want to mention is stocks go up. The average inflation rate from 1913 to 2013 was 3.2%. So in theory, anything over 3.2% is high inflation. And the years that were the worst in the United States in the modern era, 1990, 1991, 2000, 2005, 2008. In 90 and 91, we had a pretty good market correction that shortly followed inflation. In 2000, you might think that that inflation was caused by the go-go 90s of dot-com stocks. Let's just say for the sake of this argument, it was. So in 2000, we hit a massive correction in the NASDAQ. 
in the housing market, 2006, 2008 as well. So all five years where we saw high inflation, above average inflation, above average, above average being 3.22 in the modern era, something bad happened in the stock market. Something bad happened in the housing market. Two areas that created a lot of wealth for people. Two areas that our retirement basically nest egg is is poker chipped into. We're all in. That's one of the reasons that I invest in stocks is I don't believe the United States government can let stocks fail. Maybe same could be said of the housing market because too many Americans have age 60 to 100 riding on creating assets that they can live off of. And I think Congress being cynical here, they love votes so much they won't let people lose or lose the game. So inflation in all five-year periods since 1990 that has been above average in the modern era of inflation has created some problems. That's why inflation is the I word. Oh, no, no, you didn't say that this morning on radio, Rob, did you? You're crazy. You're the craziest person I know. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Find me online at robblackshow.com. An education-first approach to managing your money. This is The Rob Black Show. Invest in what is really important. Rob Black has partnered with EP Wealth Advisors. Are you concerned with financial planning, tax planning, managing your investments, or just planning your retirement? Rob Black has partnered with EP Wealth Advisors. With over $12 billion in assets under management and more than 80 financial professionals at the helm, EP has your financial future in mind. Learn more by visiting robblackshow.com. That's robblackshow.com. I'm Rob Black. I'm your smart uncle with money. Maybe not so good with love. Maybe not so good with fitness advice. But I'm good with, I think I'm good with money. And helping the average person just kind of get comfortable and start saving. And once you start, you're on your way. I try to avoid content like child tax credits. Anytime you use the word tax, you get into an area where everyone's different. So the advice has to become very generic. And then someone gets upset because that advice that they thought was for them wasn't. Um, so I try not to get into things like that. I'll hit the major points of government bills, but there's going to be some things that I go, I'm just not comfortable giving people tax advice and I don't want to hurt you. And it pains me when I get an email from someone that something I said was wrong for them. But also it doesn't surprise me that people will hear what they want to hear. And this is where it gets very, very tricky. If I do a story about Elon Musk and Tesla saying, we're going to come up with a real robot. We're done with this cars thing. We're done with the solar roof thing. We will keep doing those businesses, but our next business is going to be robots that give back massages or robots that take care of cats, robot dog walkers. I don't know. I, I may be doing it from a tech perspective and not telling you to go out and own Tesla. And you may be like, is he telling me to own Tesla? I'll be honest with you. 
I don't think you should do anything I say other than learn a bit or two and figure it out for yourself. That would make me happiest. But a couple of years ago, not a couple of years ago, 20 years ago, there was a company called Exodus Communications. Awesome t- uh, ticker symbol, EXDS. And it was a Bay Area company that was hosting the internet for corporations. Now today, some of the fastest growing companies like Amazon, Google, and Microsoft all have this big hosting of internet services off-site from corporations. So if you're an accountant, you can become super accountant and have a web presence behind you. If you're a salesperson, you can have a web presence behind you. You don't like it's awesome what Amazon Web Services, uh, Microsoft, and what they've done with Azure. I'm not gonna let me take the word awesome back. I now sound like a kid of the '80s, right? Awesome. Take them down. Um, but Exodus was a company that I liked. I liked talking about it. It had explosive growth. I knew back in 2000 that hosting applications and hosting storage offsite was going to be huge. And it is. But they were 20 years too early. And I never once owned a share of Exodus. But it's probably the biggest mistake I ever made. There's another good one like cryomedical sciences where I did own shares, but I only owned like 10,000. For me, it was a play on, you know, poops and giggles. It wasn't meant to be, this is going to be my next big retirement. Um, then there's been some others that just really haven't gone anywhere. There's been some massive home runs. I've been pushing Apple stock since the late 90s, mid 90s. And when I say pushing it, I've been talking about it and telling stories about it. When you come to California and you see a license plate that says Microsoft sucks, MSFFT, S-U-X, you go, huh, tech community really doesn't like what Microsoft does. And they liked Apple computers. So I knew that Apple had penetration of about 2% in the personal computer market and everything else went to HP, Dell, um, Compaq. You get the idea. And to me in my head, I was like, 2% to 4% is doubling. But if you're Dell and you're at 60% or 40% market share, a little bit tougher. Market share is important. But then again, it's also important to note that when you have only 2% of the PCs or 3% of the PCs ever all made, and that's one of the reasons Tesla has been such a popular investment with professional investors. It's, It's because very few Americans have Teslas. If you're in Palo Alto, it's every other freaking car. Um, it's a lot. And as you get more into the rural areas, you're like, I haven't seen a Tesla for a while. It's like a rare occurrence. It's a rare sighting of the the cuckoo bird. So I will make mistakes in my content, but you're going to make the big one. If you try to, if you, today I'm going to do a story about Tesla and robots. Tesla's going to build a humanoid robot called the Tesla bot. Elon Musk says, we're good at sensors and batteries and we'll probably have a prototype next year. And he showed a picture of what his bot's going to look like. He thinks it'll be real. He did this on what was referred to as AI Day, which is a series of tech talks hosted by Tesla in California. And the whole goal 
robot parade, robot parade. I want to go to a robot parade. The Macy's Day Parade has no interest in me, for me. Oh, look, it's a big balloon. That's like 1900. Old Junior can get a Cracker Jacks and a, a fizzy pop. Macy's is like old timer for me. I want to see robots on a parade. So Elon Musk gets together and has Artificial Intelligence Day every year. And a few years back, he talked about robo-taxis and how there's going to be 1 million autonomous robo-taxis by the year 2020. He said this in 2018, 2018, 2019. And there's certainly technology out there that's close, um, but Google's doing it, not Tesla. And Google's got some taxi services down in Arizona that are very much surreal. I did a review of one here on the show probably three, four weeks ago. And the reviewer was really pleased with almost all aspects of it, how it shifted lanes. He noted that if the taxi was supposed to go downtown in a busy area, that if it saw that it was busy with maps technology saying, you know, there's congestion or slowdown or there's an accident, it went the long way. It didn't go the short way. It didn't want to deal with that. So it's interesting that Elon Musk is the spokesperson for the future. Wouldn't it be great if we learn he's a robot? Dun, dun, dun. But also please note that he holds a lot of events that are kind of flops a year or two later. In 2016, he held an event at Universal Studios in a back lot in Los Angeles to show off a product he called the Solar Roof. It was awesome. This roof looked like it had Mexican adobe tiles on it. I guess I should just say adobe tiles because I don't think adobe tiles are uh, naturally automatically associated with Mexico. But when I've been in Mexico, I've seen a lot of them. And I think they're beautiful. It's a beautiful tile. I've never said that phrase in my life, I don't think, out loud. But it turns out that was just a concept. And he tried to get a lot of engineers around the world to go one day when I grow up and be an engineer, I want to work for Tesla because look how beautiful their roof is. Now he's doing a robot. A couple years ago, he was doing robo taxis. He's not really from the future. He's in the, the current world and he's trying to recruit talent. Um, it helps that he's got his business set up really, really close to Stanford and Berkeley, which I think is one of the greatest inequities in all of the United States. There's 10 schools in the United States that produce a crazy overweighted amount of wealth in the United States. Um, if you get a degree from Stanford or Berkeley, you basically have a ticket to start a company. And people will be lining up and they're like, oh, I don't care what you did. What you did? What? Oh, by the way, what did you do at Stanford? And you're like, oh, as a history major, like, give me my money back. Give me my money back. Um, so to get an MBA from a top 10 MBA school, um, Wharton, Princeton, Yale, Berkeley, Stanford, it basically writes your ticket for life where other schools can't say that. So therefore I see a lot of inequity, but Musk has named his robot Optimus, which I love. 
there was a robot movie many, many, many years ago, and I think I think this is where Elon Musk got it called Transformers. I only liked the cartoon version that came out in the nineties. Um, it had a great soundtrack, and at the end, Optimus Prime dies. And I don't think I was into robots, but I think I almost cried because he sacrificed himself for the other robots. I don't know if I got the story right, but Musk has used the name Optimus, and he's appealing to me. A lot of the chips that are used in Tesla's car for self-driving features will be on the robot. It's five foot eight inches. It has a screen where the head is for useful information. Designing it so that humans will be able to run away from the robot or overpower it. He doesn't want them to take over the world. He wants them to be easy to take down. Musk said the robot was not intended to help with Tesla's manufacturing, but that Tesla is developing a lot of computers needed for robotics. Very intriguing man, but he's not from the future. He's trying to write the future right now by getting engineers to work for him. I'm Rob Black. A straightforward approach to managing your money. The Rob Black Show. Questions about how to invest in your retirement? Check out robblackshow.com and get in on the conversation. Subscribe to the podcast and video channels. No one cares more about your money than you do. It's time to start to feel good about your financial future. RobBlackShow.com. RobBlackShow.com. Joining me now, Stephanie Richmond, Regional Director at EP Wealth. She's also a wealth advisor. She's in Northern California, and she's a financial planner. Let's talk a little bit about what a financial planner does and how important it is. The retirement planning guide I have on my website, so we're going to hit a lot of topics there. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. Nice to be here. So, so we have some good downloadables at robblackshow.com. It's robblackshow.com. And one of the big ones, one of the step ones on envisioning your retirement, what's it look like? I know you have a lot of clients. I have to imagine in the Bay Area, there are a lot of different type of clients. De- definitely. I, I mean, you know, from uh, young tech executives who want to retire early, right, to doctors who, you know, want to work well into their 70s because they love what they do so much, you know, to professors, to all kinds of professionals and and families um, that are working towards retirement. So when they envision their retirement, that's going to be different for every one of them because someone who wants to work into their 70s versus maybe someone who's cashing out a big stock option on a tech play. Um, some probably want to travel the world. Some probably want to live frugally and save their money. Some want to be closer to friends and family. You probably have to go through an information gathering process. What's that look like and feel like to get to know someone kind of on a pretty intimate level? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, it as you said, retirement vision differs for everybody. I mean, there's some commonalities, sure. But I think when, we, when I start that da- data gathering process, the question I like to ask first is, you know, when you think about your retirement, what's most important to you? Okay. Right. So that's 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 a that's probably the biggest question, and then from there I'll ask more specific questions, such as, you know, does that include travel, or are you planning to stay in your current home or move? You know, where do your kids live, and and so on, and that just opens up the conversation. So, probably one of the things you have to do is you start figuring out what their goals are, is how they're going to fund their goals, and you probably work with annual expenses and budgets. Is that a process? Do you find that a process for people who are coming to you for wealth management 
or have they done a pretty good job in their life at that point in time to create wealth? So therefore they know what's going on. You know, it's, it's really interesting when I reflect back, I've been doing, I've been working with individuals and their financial planning or retirement planning since 1993. And, you know, there's, there's individuals across the spectrum, people who are not prepared at all. They haven't even, they haven't sat down to think about what their retirement will look like and they haven't applied any numbers to it. You know, in other words, what it'll cost and they just don't want to budget. Right. So when I, when I ask them, you know, what do you think your retirement will look like and what will it cost? Um, they don't really have a clear answer. So it then truly is a process of deduction, right? And what I try to encourage them to do is really start thinking seriously about this anywhere from three to five years before they want to retire, you know, to see in, indeed if they can and, and, um, or validate their thoughts, in fact, that they, they truly can. And then you, got, you have folks on the other side of the spectrum. I, I worked a lot of my, uh, my years in Silicon Valley and Palo Alto, and it was really interesting. So I, I sat down with a lot of engineers, and, you know, oftentimes they came to me with detailed spreadsheets of their expenses. And, you know, they were, you know, uber prepared to consider how much it may cost. Uh, and so it, it runs the gamut. But the, the key is, is that, Working with perhaps a lump sum, thinking, oh, I can spend this, often doesn't work. You know, we want to give some consideration to the details as we get close to retirement because I had a, a client who had a lot of money, who still had a lot of money, by the way, uh, but threw a big number at me. And when we built their retirement plan, they, they didn't want to sit down and look at the details, by the way. Their plan failed. They just threw a big annual number, and I went, wow. And so, it was a bit surprising, but they said, well, why don't you lop this much off the top? And I thought, wow, that's a big number. So what happened when we did that, we found is that it still failed. But what was most interesting to me is that I didn't, they really didn't know how much they spent or they didn't really keep a close watch on it. And yeah. therefore, yes, um, it was definitely a process. And we sat down over the course of a few months to really work out their spending needs, what they might spend in future, and we to show them if they – they took the steps to cut their expenses in certain areas that their plan would work and they could retire at age 60. When I was an investment advisor, I always found that the engineers were the toughest to work with because they had spreadsheets that were better than my spreadsheets, but I'm digressing. <laughs> I'm speaking with no, Stephanie no, Richmond. I hear you. <laughs> She's regional yeah. director and wealth advisor with EP Wealth. One more factor in this, it's not just about lump sums of money. It's also about how long you're gonna live to live off that lump sum of money. Can you talk a little bit about determining your timeline for retirement? Because I had a dad who died 58 and a mom who died at 85. I don't know which way I'm going to go. If I go at the age of 58, I should be spending my money. If I go at the age of 85, I should be saving my money. How do you figure out a timeline for a client? Yeah, that's a really good question, Rob. You know, it does vary for everybody. And that's, of course, the, you know, the, the big question. And nobody really has a crystal ball. We have to look at our, our family history, and we also have to look at our, our health, right? How are we doing, and what are we doing to make sure, you know, we're living, you know, a lifestyle that will allow us to enjoy retirement for a while. And, you know, I'm, it's funny. I'm very similar to you. My dad died when I was just 21. He was only 44 years old, and his diet, dad died at 42, and, gosh, his father died at, at, at uh, 42 as well. So, you know, looking at my father's side of the family, there was not a lot of longevity. On my mom's side, there's some of that as well, but she's still going strong at 82, right? So, again, I'm with you. Who knows? But 
the key the key to looking at uh, time frames is to plan long, right? Okay. I mean, right now, if you look at the average 65-year-old woman who's in good health, there's a 50% likelihood she's going to live to 85, right? There's a 25% likelihood she's going to probably make it to 96, believe it or not. And for men, there's a 50% chance they're going to make it to a little over 83 and a 25% chance they might get to 94. So, you know, our goal here at EP, for example, is to plan to age 100. And sometimes we have a client, you know, balk at that saying, hey, that's way too long. I'm never going to make it. But, you know, the key is, is you don't want your money to run out before you do. And mm-hmm. so it's better to plan long or as we call it, to plan conservatively to make sure you'll have the assets there if you need them. What was your career path to becoming a financial planner? Oh, thank you, Rob. I will. Yeah, I'd love to share. You know, I, I started off, uh, I guess you could say um, my adult years or, you know, started off in college thinking I was actually going to be an interior designer, if you can believe it. Uh-huh. I, I loved art. <laughs> I used to draw all the time. But, you know, when I got into college, what I realized, yes, I could draw, but I probably wasn't the best at it. I wasn't actually sure I could make a living at it. Mm-hmm. So I started to think, well, perhaps I should target the business side of things. And so I switched my major to interior design, thinking I could you know, employ the best of both worlds, business and maybe art or at least some aesthetic, right? But as I started to move through that um, particular major, I realized that I wasn't particularly confident that I could make a, a good living at it. And it was really important for me to be able to take good care of myself because I wasn't sure what my financial future looked like. And, you know, one of the things that was instilled in me, you know, very early is that, you know, I needed to be money smart because, you know, frankly, I had to sort of earn my own way. I started working when I was 15 and a half, right? You know, I, 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 my father and mother were, you know, uh, very middle class. You know, they were able to, you know, buy me a, a good used car when, when I, when I got my license, but, you know, I had to buy the insurance and pay for the gas. So I had to make sure I had money coming in so that I could do that. And what I realized very early on is the importance of hard work and, and, you know, earning a dollar, um, and that it made me feel secure. And so, you know, frankly, after interior design, I, I, I was trying my hand at various things at junior college in Sacramento, American River College. And well, to make a long story short, I realized that I was pretty good at accounting and I decided to stick with that. And that, you know, eventually uh, was what I graduated with, a degree in accounting. But I'll cut to the chase here. One of the things that is true is while I feel like I'm pretty good with numbers, I like to talk a lot and I really like engaging with people. And so what I eventually found my way to was, you know, the career, a career as a financial planner. It, it, it took a winding path, and I can share more of that with you if you like. Um, but that is how I got my start. I like it. EP has a great downloadable on my website called the Retirement Planning Guide. That was Stephanie Richmond. She is regional director and wealth advisor with EP wealth. I'm super stoked to be working with her. She's a great financial planner, very insightful. Today, we talked about determining your timeline for retirement and also envision your retirement. There's a retirement guide at robblackshow.com. It's robblackshow.com. Go download it at the retirement planning guide at robblackshow.com. 
robblackshow.com. Find us at robblackshow.com. robblackshow.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.